Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's uh, a real privilege to be with you this morning. Um, so, yeah, the question I've been asked to speak to is um, the question of um, can there be one true faith? Oh, would it be okay? Yeah, thank you. PowerPoint, that's great. Um, can there be one true faith? Can, can it make sense to say that there's one true religion? And is it sort of acceptable in, in our culture today to make that kind of claim? Um, and I do think we, we have a difficulty in our society today with knowing kind of how to navigate disagreement with each other um, over lots of different kinds of issues. Um, I have um, two daughters, they're three and six, um, um, and mostly they actually get on really well, um, but just occasionally they have a really sharp disagreement, and they do not know how to handle disagreement well. So let me just give you one example. The other morning, we got the nativity set out and they were playing with the angel Gabriel. And I came into the kitchen to find a really ferocious dispute going on because our eldest daughter, Isabel, was referring to it correctly as the angel Gabriel. Our younger daughter, Elspeth, was referring to it as the angel Elspeth. And, and I said, okay, well, why can't Isabel call it the angel Gabriel and Elspeth can call it the angel Elspeth? And that was not a satisfactory solution. Each one wanted the other to agree with their name for the angel. And anyway, that's a, I just give that as a silly example to illustrate, I think, you know, something of, of the ways in which our, our society has difficulty with this issue of disagreement, how to disagree with one another um, and to, to acknowledge that we have different perspectives and nonetheless to be able to have some kind of um, tolerance or respect. Um, now, I think um, that we have seen a shift in the course of the last few decades um, in terms of what, what the word tolerance means. And I think it, there is a sense in which tolerance used to mean that even if we completely disagree with one another, we still value one another as human beings with intrinsic dignity and worth. And we would even fight for the, the right of the other to have their voice heard. Um, and, and I think actually that it can be shown that that, that basic idea of um, respecting the, the, the human person and their intrinsic dignity, even if they have a completely different view from you, has deep roots in the idea that every human being is uh, an image bearer. Um, every human being bears the image of God. I think we have seen a shift towards the idea that tolerance means agreeing with the other person and that just to, to disagree and have a different view means to be intolerant of that person. Um, you know, that if you disagree with my beliefs, it's not just that you're rejecting an idea, it's that you're rejecting me, the very core of who I am. And so I think we've seen a real kind of fractiousness over all sorts of different topics in our, um, in our society today. Um, so the, the English biographer Evelyn Beatrice Hall famously um, gave a kind of definition of tolerance, if you like, where she said that, um, you know, I don't agree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. 
This on the, the right-hand side, it's probably a little bit too small for you to read it, but it was a, a poster that the Scottish police actually produced not very long ago. Um, and it, it, it's addressed, Dear Bigots, and it, and it goes on to say that, you know, if we see or hear your hate, we're going to report you. Now, I want to be careful here, because of course there really are things that are hateful in our society. But I think we're, we're at a really difficult um, place where we're, we're not always sure how to, to classify what's healthy disagreement and what counts as hatred. And so pluralism, the idea that um, all religions are right in a sense, can seem like a really attractive option. Um, this gentleman, um, on the, the left of the slide is a, a philosopher called John Hick, a philosopher and theologian, and he was a professor at Birmingham University. He died about, um, I think about 10 years ago. But um, John Hick was probably the, the foremost advocate of, um, of pluralism as a, as a way of understanding the, um, the truth claims of the different world religions and how to bring them together. And what Hick basically said is that um, there is some kind of um, religious reality. There, there is some kind of ultimate reality that's more than the physical world. But we can't know what it's like. And it, it's a bit like a, a kind of light, but all of us are um, standing, looking at it through our, our spect colored spectacles that are filtering that light. Um, and we have different colored spectacles. Um, and that's what the different world religions are, according to, to Hick. Um, and they're all kind of equally valid um, filters through which everyone is perceiving um, that there is some kind of ultimate re religious reality. But um, when religions make specific claims to know what God is like, those claims can't be taken literally says Hick. Um, and so, so he wants to kind of say everyone is sort of right, but also sort of wrong. And, you know, on the face of it, I think you can see why this could seem like an attractive solution. Um, it, it seems to sort of play fair and, and to, to have a kind of humility about it. But I want to suggest that it doesn't actually work in the end. Um, and it doesn't do what it promises, namely to let everyone be right. Because pluralism is ultimately its own exclusive truth claim. Um, and it, I have to say, is a peculiar, peculiarly uh, modern Western way of viewing things, um, you know, which says that um, none of the major religions is literally true in their central tenets. They're only kind of metaphorically true. And so this um, pluralist view is, is its own exclusive truth claim, which contradicts all of the truth claims of the major religions, um, or at least you know, adherents of the major religions who take their doctrines literally, which is the vast majority. So it, it's its own exclusive truth claim, which rules out all the exclusive truth claims of the world religions. And the other thing about it is that it, it also doesn't really say that everyone is right or sort of right. Um, John Hick talks a lot about how 
um, religions which are putting people in touch with the real, which is his name for this sort of ultimate religious reality that we can't really say much about. Um, Hick does have lots to say about um, what other sort of fruits that we should be looking for in a religion that puts people in touch with the real. And basically, it's to do with love and, and um, charity and, and um, kindness and things like that. But of course, that reveals that Hick does have quite clear ideas about what it would look like to, in some sense, be in touch with the ultimate religious reality. Because he doesn't think that, for example, that the cult of Jim Jones, which led uh, tragically to a huge kind of cult mass suicide, he doesn't think that that's putting people in touch with the ultimate religious reality. Um, and we could name lo lots of other kind of um, you know, religious cults and so on that, um, that, that you know, one would think um, would, would not kind of count as good ways to be in touch with the ultimate religious reality. So in other words, this view, it doesn't really kind of level the playing field. It still says that, that certain religions are, are more in touch and certain ones are not. You've probably heard this parable of um, an elephant and uh, several blind men are all sort of uh, feeling the elephant to try and work out what it's like. And so, you know, one has hold of the trunk and says that uh, the elephant is, is like a rope. Another has the tusk and says it's like a spear. Another one has the leg and says it's like a tree trunk um, and so on. Um, and, and this parable is often told in, in a way that sort of, um, yeah, it, it's supposed to, to motivate the idea that, that we should be pluralistic in the way we view the world religions. They're all sort of latching onto something, but actually there's a bigger picture that they're not quite getting. But the, the interesting thing about this is the narrator of the parable is assuming that he has the full view, the full exclusive truth on what's really going on. And, uh, and he is claiming to have a, a unique privileged vantage point that none of the blind men have. So he is right, um, and they are all wrong in so far as they think that the elephant is you know, like a tree trunk and so on. And I think this, this actually nicely illustrates the problem that John Hick is like the narrator of this parable. Um, he claims to have the full exclusive truth of this situation, and all of the blind men kind of grasping around are all kind of mistaken and have a partial view. And so I think that this highlights the way in which pluralism, again, is, is actually its own exclusive truth claim. And, and all that to say, I think we actually can't escape making exclusive truth claims. Gavin de Costa um, is a, a, a theologian um, at Bristol University, and, and he um, has sort of critiqued John Hick and, and responded to him. Um, and, and what he says is this, pluralism has very specific truth claims that are also exclusive truth claims. For example, it is claimed that the real cannot be known in itself, and when any religion claims that the real has revealed itself, then such claims are false. Such pluralism cannot tolerate alternative claims and is forced to deem them as mythical. 
the irony about tolerant pluralism is that eventually it is intolerant towards most forms of orthodox religious beliefs, Christian or otherwise. <clears throat> so I, I, I've wanted to say that I, I can really understand the, the, the appeal of, of pluralism as a way of approaching things. And yet I think when you drill down into it, it, it doesn't quite deliver on what it promises. I think another temptation is to, to say that the world religions are all basically saying the same thing. And that, that we, we kind of need to say that they say the same thing in order to show proper respect towards them. Um, so I think yeah, there's, a, there's a powerful kind of um, pull towards flattening out the differences between the world religions and claiming there's a, a really strong kind of common core with only some, some minor differences around the edges. What I want to suggest by contrast is that actually it's more respectful and more dignifying to take seriously the quite significant differences between the major religions. Because I think, um, as I suggested earlier, true tolerance doesn't necessarily mean agreeing, but rather seeing each other as having infinite worth and dignity, despite our disagreements. So, um, and, and actually just to, to um, a way in which I've, I've experienced this myself is that I've um, come to be friends with a, an Islamic philosopher, a, a lecturer in Oxford, um, and uh, we go for lunch um, every few weeks, and we um, really, I would say, have a high level of respect for each other, and the thing that's really nice about our friendship is that we can just be really honest about the differences between Christianity and Islam, and, and uh, in a way that doesn't mean we're sort of getting angry with each other, and, and there's no sense of having to pretend that those differences aren't significant. And, and if anything, actually, I would say it's because we're able to be honest about that, that um, we have that level of trust and friendship. So I think, as I said, I think we need to take seriously both the similarities, and of course there are some similarities, and the differences. And that if we actually are able to, to articulate those clearly, and, and in a way that doesn't kind of um, caricature or parody what other religions are claiming, um, but is respectful, I think that actually gives us a, a much more secure basis to have friendships with people who uh, who um, follow other religions. So in terms of the similarities, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, of course, are often referred to as Abrahamic religions, and that the figure of Abraham features in some really fundamental way to that, to the sort of uh, narrative that each of these three religions wants to tell about humanity. Christianity agrees with Judaism and Islam in thinking that there is one God who is both personal and distinct from the world. So uh, God is not just kind of the sum total of the universe. Um, the, the world uh, has its being sort of contained within God, but the world is completely dependent on God. So the world isn't God. 
Um, and God would still exist even if the universe didn't. And, and of course, another thing that Christianity agrees with Judaism and Islam about is that we are morally accountable to God. Um, God is not morally indifferent. Um, and, and we will all have to stand before God and, and give an account of our lives. Christianity agrees in some ways with Eastern worldviews and religions. <clears throat> and here, of course, I'm painting with a very broad brushstroke. And of course, there's lots of nuances and, and differences between different Eastern worldviews. But very broadly speaking, Christianity agrees with many Eastern worldviews in thinking that the problem of human existence has fundamentally to do with the human heart, to do with our desires. Now, um, some Eastern worldviews think that suffering itself is um, caused by our desires. And in, in, in a sort of sense, Christianity agrees that our, at least our uh, misplaced desires are, are at the root of the human problem. But of course, turning to the differences, um, Christianity does differ very sharply with Eastern worldviews, in that Eastern worldviews, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on, typically claim that God is kind of the sum total of existence. Um, the God and is sort of the universe. Um, all is one and one is all. You, you may have heard that slogan. Some, and and the, the name for that view is pantheism. So, so um, the sum total of everything that exists is God. So you are, and me are, are both parts of God in that sense. And, and another thing is that um, many Eastern worldviews claim that the, the sense we have that there are distinctions within reality, that I am me and you are you and we are different people, um, that, that sense we have that there is distinction within the world um, and that there is personal identity, that this is actually all a big illusion. And by contrast, Christianity affirms the reality of this world and its many distinctions and, and that we are distinct personal identities. It's not all a big illusion. Now, it's, the world is not currently as God meant it to be, according to the Christian story, but God is so committed to the goodness of this created physical world that he became incarnate as a flesh and blood human being and will redeem this world. Christianity differs from many Eastern worldviews in that the latter typically claim that the ultimate destination of humanity is to sort of be absorbed into the all-encompassing oneness. Um, and obviously in, in some Eastern traditions, some forms of Buddhism, essentially that means for us to cease to exist altogether. By contrast, Christianity contends that the ultimate destination of human beings is an embodied community of perfect interpersonal love with God and one another. Contrasting Islam and Christianity, Islam claims that what human beings need most fundamentally is a framework of laws and rules 
to sort of keep us on the straight and narrow so that by living in accordance with these laws, we can kind of earn moral credit with God. And if all goes well on the day of judgment, our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. And, and this is something I've, I've talked about many times with my friend Shabir, that Islam views God in a way that God is so kind of all-surpassing that he could never kind of abase himself by stooping down to our level. Um, we, we have to kind of come up to God's level. It, it's, um, it, it just wouldn't be at all fitting for God to come down to our level. A Christianity, by contrast, claims that a framework of laws is ultimately not going to be enough to help us because there's a, a deeper problem with the human heart there's some kind of profound alienation and estrangement from God. Um, the, uh, the Christian theologian um, Augustine put it in terms of that human beings are turned in upon ourselves. Or put more simply, we aren't capable of rescuing ourselves. We, we need something to break in from outside the system. I mean, just try setting yourself a behavioral rule um, and, and try sticking to it for a year and, and just see how impossible that is. So we need something more radical according to Christianity. We need some kind of rescue from outside. And Christianity claims that God has come in person, in the human person of Jesus, to provide that rescue. And, and not just that, but that he was so committed to rescuing us that he was willing to allow himself to be humiliated and mocked uh, and spat on and tortured and subjected to the most shameful kind of death. Um, the, the book of Philippians in the New Testament um, says this about Jesus and, and the, the way that God in Jesus was willing to come down to our level. It says that um, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A final contrast I, I want to draw is that Many other religions do make truth claims, for sure, um, claims about what reality is like. But those truth claims are typically alleged to have uh, been disclosed through some kind of spiritual experience or through a, a private revelation that's come to just one individual. Um, it's not sort of a public event that's open to inspection by anyone else. And by contrast, the central claims of Christianity, the claims about who Jesus was, the kinds of things he did, in particular the claims about his death and resurrection, these, these events unfold in public um, in the full glare of recorded history, open in principle to scrutiny by anyone. And I'm very interested in the area of um, historical Jesus studies. It's a, it's a very active field of research 
Um, there's tens of thousands of, of scholars across the world today who study you know, the documents about Jesus in the way that any historian would study an ancient figure. And it may surprise you to know that there's a, a broad agreement among historians about the core events of Jesus' life. So there's an agreement, and, and this includes by people who are um, not Christians, um, there's a, a broad agreement that we can know uh, quite a few facts about what Jesus was like, that, that he was a, an itinerant Jewish preacher, uh, that he proclaimed the arrival of God's kingdom, as he called it, um, that he healed people, and, and actually historians do agree that there's enough evidence to conclude that Jesus healed people. Of course, uh, you know, atheist historians might want to say, well, that's some kind of uh, placebo mechanism or something we don't understand yet. But nonetheless, there is an agreement that Jesus was a healer. Um, and of course, that he promoted this radical ethic of uh, forgiveness and loving enemies. And there's an agreement that he, he did seem to see himself not just as a, a one who was proclaiming the arrival of God's kingdom, but that he saw himself as the one in whom, through whom the kingdom was arriving, that, that he was the king of the kingdom. And, and that he had this last supper with his friends, with bread and wine, that he was betrayed, arrested, crucified, buried, and that his followers really did sincerely believe that he had been raised. Uh, whatever explains that, um, that, that sincere conviction, uh, that, but they, that they were so sincerely convinced of this that they were willing to die for it. And, and, it, and so when I, I look at that and, um, and think about the way in which these central claims of Christianity are, are in principle open for us to investigate for ourselves. It's not the idea that this was revealed privately um, to, to people in, in visions and things that we can't inspect for ourselves. Um, actually, I um, had the privilege of going to Israel about two years ago now. Um, and these, well, on the, on the right are some images from that trip. And... Um, and it's really amazing, actually, and just gives you a sense of the concreteness of, of the Christian story, that you can go to these places like Nazareth and Capernaum and so on, and, and archaeologists have excavated all sorts of things that, that match up really well with the, the descriptions in the Gospels, and, and you can even go to what archaeologists think is Peter's house uh, and so on, and it just gives this real sense of the, the, the earthiness and the concreteness of, of this story. Um, it, it's not some kind of ethereal claim that, that we have no way of testing for ourselves. And actually, the, the um, New York uh, Times columnist, Ross Douthat, uh, had has a really nice quote where he kind of sums up this, this sense of... Um, of, of why he finds Christianity compelling in contrast to a number of other claims about reality. He says that the, the Bible as a whole is one of the most beautiful, strange, and open to multiple interpretation books that there is. And its emergence from a minor but oddly resilient nation of Semites is both more strikingly unlikely and less contingent on a single religious personality than the genesis of any other holy book. And that's even before you dig into what Christians consider its culminating revelation, a miraculous story that unfolds not in myth or prehistory, 
but at an apex of earthly civilization, in the harsh light of recorded history, with multiple overlapping testimonies to its reality, that 2,000 years of criticism have not even begun to convincingly discredit. One final question, though, to, to consider, and, and I do think this, this is um, also there in the background when people raise this question about other religions and, and um, whether it can make sense to claim that just one is, is true. And that's the question of fairness. Uh, isn't it unfair that um, where and when you were born in the world has such a big impact on what information you will be exposed to and which religious influences um, will play a part in your life? Or another way to put the question, what about those who have never heard? Or, or those who have heard but in a, in a kind of garbled form? And I think, you know, um, here there's the question that we face of well, what is necessary for a person to be saved? And I think the New Testament is very clear that, that it is always Jesus who is the one who does the saving. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. But um, what, what does that mean <clears throat> in terms of people who don't uh, necessarily recognize that it's Jesus? Um, so people in the Old Testament, at least some of them seem to have been saved. Um, and they didn't know, at least explicitly, about Jesus. They knew that they couldn't save themselves, and they reached out to the one who could save them. Now, it may sound like a cop-out to say this, but, but actually we are not told what is the fate of those who haven't heard. And, and I don't think that, that we're sort of required to form a view on that. But what we can know is the character of the judge. Um, we can look at Jesus and, and see the way that he treats people. The, the compassion, the, the justice in the way that he interacts with human beings. And so what I want to suggest is we don't need to worry and think that well, I might be more fair and just than he is. One final thought to leave you with as well. <clears throat> you may be surprised to know that, that um, people in places that you might have thought were completely cut off from Christian influence are, um, are encountering Jesus. Um, there are um, literally thousands and thousands of, of stories, and, um, and I, I know a handful of individuals who, who have personally had these kind of experiences, um, where Jesus, uh, people are encountering Jesus in dreams um, across uh, the Muslim world. And, and some of these people had, had never really heard of Jesus before, or, or certainly not the kind of um, picture of Jesus that, that Christians uh, would have in mind. Um, and, and yet, once they have these encounters with Jesus in their dreams, uh, they're often so compelled by them that they're willing to sort of uh, give up everything to follow him. So, drawing this to a close, um, that there's lots of uh, difficult questions here for us to wrestle with, to do with the, the nature of disagreement, um, and, and how we can uh, live alongside and love our neighbors who, who are of different faiths. Um, so let's pray. 
Um, dear Father, we thank you that you have come to us in the person of Jesus, that you've um, reached down to us um, when we couldn't reach up to you. Um, Lord, we, we thank you that you've placed us in a, a society where there are um, people around us who, who have all sorts of views, <clears throat> and we pray that you'll help us to, to love them and to, to be um, your hands and feet to them. Amen.